This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 30th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. President Trump's recent trip to Saudi Arabia, the Vatican, Israel, and meetings with other world leaders reveals a foreign policy driven by personality rather than a deep regard for U.S. security interests. Emma Ashford, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, explains. What did President Trump have to say to the Saudis, and how did it differ from his earlier statements about Islam and about uh, the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia? During the campaign, Trump was actually quite critical of the Saudis. Um, he said that they you know, weren't paying for the protection the U.S. was providing them. He made, obviously, lots of comments about a Muslim ban and other derogatory comments about Islam. But when he actually went to Saudi Arabia on his first foreign trip, um, he really seemed to just do a complete about-face on that. Um, he basically gave Saudi leaders everything they could possibly have wanted from this trip. He gave them a huge arms deal. He told them that the U.S. would stand with them against you know, regional aggressors, by which he obviously means Iran. Um, and, and just in general, that trip, that part of the trip to Saudi Arabia went really, really well for the Saudis. And Trump himself obviously feels that it went very well, even if perhaps it wasn't necessarily in U.S. interests. It, I had heard from some commentators that his main pitch in Saudi Arabia was, hey, look, I'm not Barack Obama. And in Saudi Arabia, um, perhaps in Israel and one or two other places, that actually is a pretty good pitch. Um, the Saudis, I would say of all traditional U.S. allies, the Saudis probably had the most problematic relationship with Obama. Now, that is because Barack Obama actually took necessary, difficult steps to try and improve U.S. relations with other countries, particularly Iran in the Middle East. Um, and the Saudis weren't happy about that at all. Um, so for Trump, the Saudis see an opportunity to reclaim the US alliance partnership um, and to turn it fully on Iran rather than working with them. Does the fact that the US has put together this very large arms deal with Saudi Arabia, does it make it at all more likely that the US can then sort of step back from the wars in that region? So as my colleague Trevor Thrall has, has put it to me, massive arms deals to the Middle East are basically like pouring gasoline on a fire. Um, it's not particularly going to help these countries defend themselves any better. And it allows them to do some very destabilizing things, in particular with the Saudis, the war in Yemen. Um, we're selling them munitions that they're basically using to bomb Yemen back to the Stone Ages. And so none of this is actually good in the long term for regional stability, for U.S. interests, even if it looks good on paper today. Okay, so it this does not create then the opportunity for the U.S. to back down or back away from these wars? I think uh, somewhat ironically, what Barack Obama was actually doing was better for long-term regional stability and certainly better for U.S. interests. He was trying to make it so that we had better relations with all the states in the Middle East, that we weren't necessarily taking one side in a regional conflict. And what Trump is actually doing instead with this big arms deal, with all his comments on, on Iran and his sort of cozying up to the Saudis, is he's saying, no, the U.S. is definitely going to take one side. We're going to back the Gulf states and we're going to back them all the way. And that's a profoundly destabilizing statement. So back them all the way then, and not to, not to beat a dead horse here, but back them all the way means that the United States will get more deeply involved aside from arms sales? 
It seems like the Trump administration is preparing to take a much harder line against Iran. Um, we've already seen them initiate some new sanctions. Um, that's perhaps not that different from what the Obama administration would have done. But there is a major sanctions bill in Congress that would really uh, up sanctions on Iran. Um, the Trump administration is basically talking about taking a harder line against Iran in conflicts like Yemen or Syria. There's the potential for perhaps conflict between U.S. proxies and Iranian proxies in those conflicts. Um, and all of this is basically just the Trump administration taking a far less conciliatory line towards Iran than the Obama administration did. So uh, if a hard line on Iran seems to be the pitch, that should please Israel as well. In general, yes. Um, and I think when President Trump hit the second stop on this big foreign tour, which was Israel, he was welcomed pretty warmly. Again, the Israelis think that Trump is going to be better for them than Obama was. Um, unfortunately, during his time in Israel, uh, Trump didn't seem to impress the population very much. He made a number of, of gaffes. Uh, during his time in Israel, uh, in particular, his choice to only spend 15 minutes at Yad Vashem, the Israeli Holocaust memorial, and leaving a note that was just extremely strange and like perhaps more like something you would write in a yearbook than something you would leave in a condolence book. And so in general, though, Israeli politicians were very welcoming of Trump. The Israeli population seems a little less sure about him. All right. So uh, after uh, those two stops, uh, the president spoke with uh, NATO leaders where he decidedly did not reaffirm the commitment that the U.S. has signed on to what's known as Article 5 of the NATO Charter. Yeah, the the contrast between Trump's um, reception and attitudes in Saudi Arabia and to some extent in Israel, the contrast between those stops and his later stops on the tour when he met with the Pope at the Vatican, when he met with NATO leaders and then later with G7 leaders in Europe could not be more pronounced. Um, in the case of the NATO meeting, Trump basically got up in front of NATO leaders and, and lectured them to their faces about defense spending. Now, he's actually right that NATO does need to rebalance defense spending. Europeans need to contribute more to their own defense. This is an entirely justifiable point of view. But again, the way that Trump did it, where he stood up and embarrassed those leaders publicly, is probably not the way to actually win concessions in the long run. Now, haven't the, those countries already committed to increase their own defense spending? Well, we have seen some increases in recent years, um, and that's not so much due to Trump himself as it is to the fact that these countries are beginning to see more of a threat from Russia and spending is rising, particularly in the Eastern European countries. Um, and all NATO countries commit, as a matter of course, to spending 2% of GDP on their own defense. Um, most NATO countries don't actually meet that limit, but there has been a lot of noise recently about European countries starting to move in that direction. Um, Trump, as I say, just is not taking enough of a conciliatory line that's going to make him actually get along well with those leaders. And that's problematic. How has uh, Vladimir Putin's view of NATO changed in the last 16 years or so? I, I seem to recall, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, Vladimir Putin, when he was uh, getting chummy with George W. Bush seemed to indicate that he thought uh, Russia ought to be a member of NATO. 
Russia's relationship with NATO is complicated um, in part because in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, and this this wouldn't be as late as George W. Bush, this would be under Bush Sr., the first president, George Bush. Russia really did want to actually join NATO. After the Cold War, it was implied that Russia maybe could move westward, join the European transatlantic community, and that NATO might be a part of that. What happened over the next 15, 16 years, however, is that NATO expanded, expanded eastward a a long way, almost all the way to Russia's borders. Um, And Russia was basically made aware that it would not be welcome in NATO. And so for Russia, NATO came to be seen as more of a security threat to Russia. Um, Whether or not that's actually justifiable is beside the question. Russian leaders believed that NATO was a threat. Um, And so today, when we see these Russian actions like trying to meddle in elections, trying to influence politicians in Western Europe, trying to undermine the sanctions regime that was imposed on them after they seized Crimea, these are all the actions of a relatively weak country that worries about NATO and whether it's going to expand even further. Now, um, some people in the White House have already walked back the uh, president's statements about uh, NATO, or rather his lack of statements about uh, the NATO charter and Article 5, which we should uh, remind people was only be used once for 9-11, and that was when uh, those other countries uh, were asked to come to the aid of the United States. But, uh, you know, we have these agreements with other countries that are not really explicit, like Taiwan uh, and and other places where it's not an explicit guarantee of security. Uh, but here, with respect to NATO, it is an explicit guarantee of security that, at the very least, seems that the United States, uh, through the president, is not as committed as he ought to be to that guarantee. Trump has made clear that he isn't committed to NATO as an idea or an institution, that he is perhaps even hostile to the European Union or to some European countries. Um, In fact, some of the bigger gaffes from the trip last week was not that the NATO lecturing that he did, it was actually that he reportedly in private meetings told Angela Merkel that he thought that the US and Germany had a major trade problem and that German exports of goods to the US were were bad or perhaps even evil. So this uh, kind of attitude where he's really driving a wedge between us and other democratic states in the world um, that that's almost more concerning because it will encourage those countries to start to go their own way. Um, and rather than some sort of managed transition where these countries would take more responsibility for their own defense and the U.S. would slowly wind down its commitment to those countries, that, that would be a sensible way to do this. Trump instead just seems to be setting out to alienate everybody and make this process happen much faster. Now, a lot of these countries, you know, it costs a lot of money to defend yourself and it, it takes time to develop your own internal capacity for defense. Is that the biggest problem here? 
for some of these countries, ramping up defense spending fast enough is actually quite tricky. So if you take Germany that has a massive GDP, it can be tricky for them to ramp up to another whole percentage of GDP on defense spending um, in a very short time. Um, really, the problem is that these states have simply grown reliant on U.S. defense spending. And there needs to be a rebalancing of that spending. But it, it can't happen overnight. Um, and even though Trump talked about his success on this trip and how countries have committed to increasing spending, it's still going to take time for that to happen. Angela Merkel, uh, I believe, has said that she no longer views the United States as a reliable partner. That's concerning. Um, I think there, there are two things here. One is that whatever Trump says about Article 5 or what, however much he alienates these leaders, there are still tens of thousands of US troops in Europe. So that commitment to European defense right now is entirely as strong as it has been, if only because we have so many troops on the ground. But from another angle, these statements that we're starting to see from European leaders after the trip from Angela Merkel, from uh, Emmanuel Macron in France and other European leaders, it's worrying because they have realized that Trump, who is really unpopular among their populations, that they can actually benefit politically, domestically from attacking him and from attacking the US. And in the long run, that's probably going to hurt our interests more than anything else. And it, it doesn't seem Donald Trump minds that. It seems that he, in a, in a way, thrives on being uh, the bad guy or having uh, strong opponents and not truly having uh, allies as we have in the, the NATO arrangement. Foreign policy under Trump has been just extraordinarily driven by his personality. And this is perhaps unique, at least in recent US history. Um, and what we saw in this trip was that where countries rolled out the red carpet and, and made Trump feel welcome and valued and wanted like they did in Saudi Arabia, like they did in Israel, things went well and Trump considered it to be a success. In areas like the G7 meetings or the NATO meetings or, or even at the Vatican with the Pope, where other leaders tried to push Trump on difficult issues that he might actually have to give up something on, those meetings did not go well. Um, and even just the way that Trump acted around other leaders, isolating himself from them in, in one memorable incident, shoving the prime minister of Montenegro aside to get to the front of a picture opportunity, um, none of this personality-driven foreign policy is going to actually improve our security or our foreign policy goals in the long run. Is it concerning just as a general matter that uh, the president of the United States is more welcomed in Saudi Arabia than he was in Brussels? I think it is. Whatever our problems with the NATO alliance, even given the fact that European states don't contribute enough to their own defense, these are states that are fundamentally like us. They are liberal Western democracies with whom we have had alliances in the past, with whom we trade um, with whom we have cultural exchanges. And you can't easily compare that kind of bond to an autocracy like Saudi Arabia, where human rights, where women's rights are routinely disregarded. Um, it's one thing to work with states like that when our security needs require it. It's quite another to extend the hand of friendship um, and say, oh, you're our new best friends. Is it... Uh I mean, could, it, could you look at this and say, oh, well, this is the rebalancing. We are uh, relatively uh, less friendly with uh, all, I mean, relatively less friendly with most countries 
and relatively more friendly, at least with respect to trading relationships and et cetera, with others. I mean, we don't necessarily want to have foreign governments as friends because that sort of can lead to foreign entanglements. Is there is there an upside here? No, because I think if Trump is conducting a rebalancing, he is rebalancing us in the wrong direction. And I think the Middle East is probably the clearest example of this. The Obama administration um, spent a lot of time trying to find more of a regional balance, um, trying to somewhat reopen ties with Iran and bring them back into the international community, trying to minimize the impact that Saudi Arabia was having on the region. And that actually could be seen as rebalancing our commitment to the Middle East after a long period of overcommitment and a long period where we sided with one side in a regional power struggle. What Trump is doing is saying, well, everything Obama did is going straight out the window. And instead, we're going to side with the Saudis again. That's not rebalancing, that's unbalancing the region. Emma Ashford is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.